Can the power of story change the world? We'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog to make the show? And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo, and that's the dog. I think that's Layla barking. Say hello to Layla. Say hi, Layla. Uh, anyway, welcome. I can't get any order around here with, with you know, it's totally disrespected. <laughs> it's kids with their dogs. Anyway, welcome to the big program today. I appreciate you being here. You know what? I should run the, the commercials while we get the dogs under control. Today's sponsors here. This episode is brought to you by Put Me in the Story. Put Me in the Story creates personalized books for kids by taking best-selling children's picture books and well-loved characters and allowing you to create personalized books that make your child the star of the story alongside their favorite characters. Save 25% store-wide when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code SAVE25. We're also sponsored by Lovely. Lovely is your online stop for modern, irresistible, and affordable women's clothing. Never before has dressing yourself been so easy. Lovely's carefully curated selection of apparel, accessories, and outerwear are always on trend and always available at the web's best prices. Lovely is dedicated to delivering high-quality clothing to women that will make them look and feel their best. They believe every woman has the right to dress well and shouldn't have to spend <laughs> a lot to love how she looks. They make it easy to wear outfits you love every day, giving you the confidence to take on the world. Lovely.com summer fashion trends are now 40% off, starting at just $5.99. Get an extra 18% off when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code JFT18. We're also sponsored by VaporDNA. Founded in 2013, VaporDNA is the premier online vape store offering an industry-leading selection of electronic cigarettes, e-liquids, and accessories. Their friendly and knowledgeable customer service team is always ready to provide the best customer service experience to ensure you find what you're looking for. They guarantee their products to be 100% genuine and at the lowest possible price. They're so confident in their selection and customer service, they offer their customers a 45-day refund policy. Save 20% when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code ORIONQ. I tell you, folks, uh, the dog thing is is really going to drive me a little crazy. Here's the thing, and I apologize for this. I have my stepdaughter and her husband staying with us, uh, and they own two dogs. And they know <laughs> the dogs always bark at them when they go out or come home, and they know what time I do my shows. And um, for some reason, they insist on 
either leaving or coming home right at the start of a show lately, and the dogs start barking. I apologize for that. It's extremely uh, unprofessional, um, and I will address the situation off air. I do appreciate you you coming today, and, and thank you for sitting through the uh, sponsor uh, stuff, and I hope you patronize our sponsors. Now, here's the thing. Today we're going to talk to, uh, we have another episode of Meet the Author, and it occurred to me, America, United States of America is the lion's share of population when it comes to North America. We have 320 million people. I'm not sure what the population of Canada is, but I know it's nowhere near 320 million people. Here's the deal, though. On this podcast, and we're approaching the 400th episode. This is 391 official airing. Uh, we still have several in the can, but we're coming up on 400 episodes. And out of those 400 episodes, the majority, I would say probably over 200 to, uh, are Canadian. And I'm wondering why that is. Uh, seems more creative people, a higher, higher percentage of creative people, or people who just are more inclined to be interviewed on podcasts are Canadian than American. It's just a very uh, strange um situation to me to see more people from Canada, uh, by far uh, per capita, showing up by, and on po- podcast interviews. What's behind all that? I don't know, but it's it's something that I find interesting. We have another uh, young lady from Canada today. Actually, she is originally from Guyana, uh, but now from Canada, a Canadian citizen, Canadian author. So we look forward to that. Um, conversation coming up in just one moment um i I just want to kind of uh mention we do have the 400th episode uh coming up and i'm wondering if we should do something special and i'm kind of at a loss for ideas so if you want to email me at info at minddogtv.com you got any special ideas for a, a special 400th episode we did a special on two on the 200th episode uh, and we had a lot of uh, past guests return and did like a just a party, a, a stream yard party, had lots of people involved. Uh, I'm not sure what I want to do for the 400s. We didn't do one for the 300, but I think 400 is a significant um, a significant milestone to take uh, a moment to, to reflect and celebrate on how far we've come. Also, I want to mention we have a Patreon page now. We do have our first uh, subscriber to the Patreon page. We just launched it a couple of days ago, uh, almost a week ago now, and we have our first uh, uh, Patreon member at the highest tier level, the big dog level, uh, Larry Jorgensen from uh, Mississippi. And thank you, Larry, for joining the, the program. You're, you're a first, and we're going to do something really special. We haven't figured out what that is just for Larry for being the first, and we do, do appreciate uh, him joining. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to uh, meet another author today, and this is an interesting one, folks, and I think she's got some lofty goals, if you ask me. But Natasha Dean knows what it's like not to quite fit in. Her family moved from Guyana to Canada to escape the country's growing racial and political violence. She found her own refuge in books and comic books that were full of weird, oddball, uh, don't quite in. Uh, don't quite fit in characters. And so now she is uh, dedicating her life to writing books uh, that will change the world. And I think changing the world is quite a lofty goal, but uh, we'll talk to her about it right now. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your mind, and help me welcome in Natasha Dean to the Mind Dog TV podcast. (laughs) Natasha, welcome. Hello, hello. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me today. Uh, 
Thank you for, for coming. I, I, as I was uh, thinking about introducing you, I, I, I was very cognizant of, do I say, uh, uh, am I saying anything improper here? Here, her, she, uh, we're not, we're not, you know, and I'm fully supportive of, you know, pronouns. Anybody who wants to be called, if you want me to call you whatever you want me to call you, I'm fine with that. But we're not used to it here in the U.S. And I understand, is it law where you are that... <laughs> You know what? I, I, I don't I don't think it's been written into law yet, but I think what it is for most Canadians is we understand it's a very quiet way to support transgender people um, and just to say, hey, here's my pronouns. And if you feel comfortable putting up what your pronouns are, then I will respect um, you as a human being and you as a person and and uh, go that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, uh, and I don't want to take too much time on this but is there a uh, definitive uh, list of them or can people just make them up like i'm deciding today that i want to be whatever i I make up well that that would get into a whole discussion about um the fluidity of gender and and self-identity but uh as far as i know it's usually he she or they um okay I also wonder if perhaps as a, you know, for kids writers, we're more cognizant of that because we're dealing with children and, and teens, especially as they're um, defining themselves and, and finding the strength to sort of be strong in their, in their identity and who, who they are. So, wow. You know, that's uh, something we never, and uh, here we are already uh, kind of transitioning into uh, that space and something I never thought about growing up and and the the kids really, the children identify themselves, uh, you know, in that way. And and what, do they put a lot of thought into gender? But I wasn't even thinking in terms of gender when I asked, are there any, can anybody make up? You know, it, it, once you open the door to, I and I, I totally respect it. If somebody wants to be called anything, I mean, uh, I should be able to to say that in a polite way and say, please address me this way without causing a whole bunch of uh, political and, and hard feelings about anything, you know. Uh, but I don't know. Do kids really uh, put a lot of thought into that? Is that something that children need to be concerned with? Well, I certainly can't speak for every kid, but um, I think for most of us, when we grew up, we we instinctively identified, right? Like you grew up and you said, I'm a girl, I'm a boy. Right. Uh, I like girls, I like boys. And there is um, a lovely segment of our population that grows up and says, mm, I'm, I'm actually non-binary, right? I prefer to be a they, and mm. I like it that way. And... I think you're absolutely right. Like it's it's not that hard to just say, "Oh, you you want to be addressed by that pronoun? Totally fine. It it's not going to make me lose any sleep, right? right. I mean, it, it's respect to respect. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with gender in my mind. It could have could be with anything. I mean, I want uh, I I just whatever. I feel comfortable identifying myself as I should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to get, you know, I know there are people who would just will take it to extreme, no matter what their uh, reasons for doing, they have, they want to tear this whole, uh, they want to tear people down. And, mm-hmm. but so they will say, well, what if you want to identify as a cat? Should I call you your kitty? Uh, and, uh, you know, if I prefer to be called kitty, I mean, I might be a little crazy in thinking I'm a cat, but if I ask you to call me kitty, I don't see why. <laughs> Why, why it should really bother you that much. I mean, to, to the point where you have to get a, a advocacy about it and, and really get all worked mm-hmm. up over it. But moving on now, uh, mm-hmm. 
as I mentioned uh, in in your intro, mm-hmm. uh, moving from Guyana to Canada to escape the country's growing racial and political violence. Um, what period are we talking about? Because uh, you know, Americans and, and I don't. I always sound like I'm beating up on on my own country. Americans are very short on the education of our own. Uh, history, but Guyana history is, uh, I guarantee you, there aren't any Americans who understand what that means. Uh, uh, You know, what period we're talking about where there was racial and political violence in Guyana that forced people to to leave the country. Can just give me some idea of what we're talking about? Sure. Yeah. And and, um, that that upheaval is still is still going on. Uh, so really broadly, Guyana um, is a country in South America. It was split up by the colonists into French Guyana, Dutch Guyana, and British Guyana. Uh, and then when the um, colonists had had enough and they sort of used up all the resources that they could, they left the country. Um, and they left the country in a, in a huge mess with a lot of racial issues because there was, uh, there was preference. The lighter you were, the, the more access you had to white collar jobs, to education, to uh, bettering yourself and, and bettering the lifestyle that you led. And so my family, um, we moved to Canada in the early 80s. Wow. And so, and then just to sort of be really specific about it, I have a very, very weird origin story in the sense that my parents were here in Canada. My dad had um, a student visa, so he was studying. So both my older sister and I were born in Canada. But when I was three weeks old, my family moved back to Guyana, grew up there, and then came back. So it's I'm, I'm born Canadian, but my experience with Canada is very much an immigrant experience because the first country I knew was a country of you know, monkeys and coconuts and peacocks and rainforests. And then, you know, I came here to, to Canada and I was laughing at your introduction when you were talking about just how many Canadian authors you had. And I, and I was sort of thinking to myself, well, because it's cold up here. Like, what else are we going to do? <laughs> we got we to write. Hockey and skate, mate. Hockey right? and ski and skate. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's minus 27 out here in Alberta um, where I'm at. And I don't know what that works out to in Fahrenheit, but it's minus 27 degrees Celsius. So really cold. Your skin will freeze in, in less than, I think, a minute uh, yeah. if it's not protected. So uh, um, when it comes to, uh, you know, transcribing Celsius to Fahrenheit, I'm, I'm so confused. There's no formula that seems to make sense for me. But I know <laughs> I think damn cold is, is su- <laughs> sufficient. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when we got a minus sign, no matter what it is. Um, so, uh, and I don't want to bel- belabor this point too much, but I think apart from the racial violence and, and political violence, Guyana sounds like a paradise, <laughs> except yeah. for other, other than those couple of uh, little, um, so it, I guess, um, the transition from, you know, a place that is really, paradise-like except for the political conditions uh, <laughs> to a place that is very barren. That's got, that alone in itself would make a, a kid feel a little bit isolated and what am I doing here? This is a foreign world to me. So um, I know you did not um, necessarily aspire to be a writer as a young person. When did, when did that actually happen that you, you started saying, uh, I'll put this in, into words and ideas and write it down and, and see yeah. what happens? Uh, actually, so f- 
funnily enough, it happened orig originally when I was about nine. Um, there's a wonderful kids Canadian writer named Gordon Corman. And I'm nine years old and I'm reading his book, This Can't Be Happening at McDonald Hall. And on the back, it said that he wrote this book when he was 13. And it blew my mind that you could be a kid and be a writer at the same time. So, you know, I went to my the school librarian. I went to my teachers, my parents, the public uh, librarians. Nobody knew how to do this. And I thought, well, I guess being a writer is a little bit like, you know, winning the lottery or, or you know, when you walk into the supermarket there and they say, oh, you're the thousands customer, you know, you get everything for free. That's that's kind of why I put it aside. Uh, and then when I was in university uh, and, and trying to survive the course lows, I started writing just as a way to as self-care and, and just to sort of bring down the stress levels and write for fun, like holy smokes, write for just the, the just the thrill of it. Uh, and then it was a couple of years out, out of university that I thought, I want to give this a shot. I want to see if I can do it. And the rest is history. It took me a couple of years, but um, here I am. Mm. So uh, have you lost any of that um, motivation of just doing it for fun? And, and uh, because uh, the purpose, and I, I think this is important for the aspiring writers out there who mm -hmm. many of them are dissatisfied with their uh, level of success. And mm -hmm. I think uh, we get to define our own success. And mm -hmm. I think we often we lose track of the reason we started being creative, whatever it is, whether it's writing books, writing music, performing comedy, making films, whatever. We get distracted from what you just described as I did it for mm -hmm. a way to relieve stress and it was fun and I loved it. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, it made me feel good. How, are you still connected to that feeling or has it become a business, a chore? Uh, oh. Yeah, I'm still, I still try very hard to connect to that feeling. Um, I think, I think you're right. You know, when, once we turn anything from a hobby into a job, uh, the obligations and the pressures of a job come in, right? The, right. It's got to be nine to five. It's got to, you know, you've got to produce a certain amount. And writing is a very odd occupation because you can sit there for eight hours and not necessarily have the level of production you want. Whereas, you know, if you're laying laminate or laying flooring, you, you start early in the morning. By the end of the day, there is like you, you can quantify what you've done. Um, sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> uh, but for writing, I mean, a lot of times you're going to you're going to sit there and and your brain is percolating. But the actual writing isn't going to happen for, you know, days or weeks or, you know, God forbid, months sometimes. Uh, and so, you know, for aspiring writers and, and for myself, you know, what I always come back to is um, it's the joy of it, right? It's, it's like what a great thing it is that my job is to play around in the playground of imagination and to think about scenarios of what if this happened and what, you know, and what would it be funny and can I make someone laugh if my character does this and can I, you know, make them stay up and, and forget about going to bed or sleep with the lights on because I've scared them so much. It's, it's those kinds of things that I always try to come back to because um, at the end of the day, those are the things that we can control. We can't control reviews. We can't control sales. We can't control if we're going to get an agent or a publisher. Like all those things are up to somebody else. But we can control, am I going to sit in the chair today and give it a good faith effort? Am I going to take satisfaction that even if I didn't get, you know, 10 pages done or five pages done or two pages done, I tried my very best. 
uh, and that that is wonderful, right? Like that's that's my sense of accomplishment, and and just like you said, that's how I'm going to define my success: a right. good faith effort and just just that I tried. Well, um, I agree with you on 99.9% of what you just said, but there were times when I was in the corporate world where I spent uh, uh, 10 hours or uh, 12 hours in the office and at the end of the day asked myself, what the hell did we get done today? Uh, <laughs> I, I worked, uh, I once got caught um, when I worked in the business world in a meeting that was three hours and the entire meeting was the team leader trying to decide what color binder we should have. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. You know, when we first, like the first 50 minutes, she's like, Oh, well, we need to figure out what color binders we should have. And I was like, she's, she's kidding. Right? Like who cares? Uh, yeah. And then we got into the conversation and then three hours later, and I went, I remember going back to my manager just being like, I, I will buy you like a coffee every day. I will buy you cupcakes. Like, please get me off this task force. Like, please just find a way. Cause three hours, man, I lost, I was losing my will to live. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I worked for a corporation that at the time in the nineties, it was 27,000 employees. And, Ooh. um, my, and the building I worked in, cause they had many buildings, but it, every single day, the entire building took, uh, break to celebrate somebody's birthday and have cake and sing happy birthday to many people and and I that was my biggest complaint across the board. Anytime I met with uh, a vice pre senior vice president or somebody about we need to stop these daily meetings about the cake and I, it's almost like mandatory. You have to stop what you're doing and go wish somebody a happy birthday and sing happy birthday and cut cake and, and have cake and sit there while nobody has anything to say, making small talk. Was, what a waste of productivity. <laughs> um, but moving on from that now, uh, we talked about measuring your own success by, by the value of what you're doing and the feeling. And, but having a lofty goal of changing the world, which I admire you for, and I think we all do whether we – whether we set out to intentionally change the world or or not, we're having an effect on the world. But that kind of stuff, I mean, it, it's a very lofty goal. But how do you even uh, how do you approach that in a sense where I, I how do I know if I'm making a, a positive difference? Because as I said, we're all making a difference in the world, whether we're doing it intentionally or unintentionally, for better or for worse. How do you how do you know that your books are or, or and what you're doing is really uh, serving um to to change the world in a better way yeah no those are those are great questions and um my my standing is story so not not just my stories but stories in general uh change the world and you're absolutely right like every day we walk into the world and the way we move in the world tells the world a story about who we think we are what we think we can accomplish how we feel about the people around us um, and so we are constantly telling stories uh, to ourselves and, and to other people, even even little things like, you know, to those aspiring writers, the day that you sit down, and you think, gee, can I write a book? Uh, and then you step out and you go, OK, well, I'm going to give this a shot. That's a story you've told yourself. Right. I'm the hero in, in the journey of my life. And this is a goal that I have. And I'm I feel like I can do it. I feel like I can accomplish that. And, and conversely, you know, times when we say to ourselves, oh, well, I'm, I'm not that good. You know, I'm not, I'm not that pretty. I'm not that talented. I'm not that smart. Like those are all negative stories we tell ourselves. Uh, and so for me, when I'm talking about um, stories changing the world and, and one of my, my 
big things is, is saying to people like, yeah, you need to tell your stories, right? Because no one sees the world the way you do. It's, it's only you. So if you don't tell your story, uh, that story is never going to get told because there's, there's no one else that's going to be able to tell it the way that you can. Um, and my idea that stories are changing the world constantly comes back to when I was a child and Canada had just opened its doors to non-white immigrants, which meant that, you know, within our neighborhood, within the schools, um, we were the only people of color. You know, my sister and I went, it was a K to nine school. And um, to the best of my recollection, we were the only two kids who were not white. Um, and what it meant was it set us up for a, a huge amount of racism and ignorance and, and violence. And, um, it was winter. It was my very first winter. And, you know, I, as, as lush as Guyana is, I love, I love Canada's beauty. I love snow. I really like snow just does it for me. Come on um, down. Yeah, I got a <laughs> shovel. I got a shovel in a yard full of it. Uh, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it was coming home with uh, a bunch of grade nine boys that decided the fun thing to do would be to grab some snowballs, um, throw some pebbles and stones in the snowballs, hurl them at us, along with sort of every hateful thing that they could think of to say. And uh, you know, going home not understanding those words because like no one had ever said those words to me and having um, having my mom explain and my dad explain uh, racism and, right. and what racial slurs were. And, you know, and it's a really, really traumatic thing for anybody, let alone when you're a five-year-old child and you realize that this world will never be safe for you because you don't look like anybody else. Um, and what ended up happening is my mom and dad, uh, my dad would take care of the house and my mom went out with us and she hunted down the ringleader of the group of kids who were, were bullying us. And, um, you know, when we talk about stories and how we, we, view, we tell the world who we are and how we, we view the world and how we view the people around us, my mom could have handled it uh, just like a variety of different ways. And it has always stayed with me that my mother chose to be classy and to be kind. And she phoned and she spoke to the boy's grandparents um, because that's who he was living with because his parents were going through this terrible divorce um, and invited them over for cake and tea. And my mom made cake for my bully and uh, came over and, um, you know, and the grandfather, I remember the grandfather coming in and he had just the kindest face and saying to my sister and I, who were absolutely terrified, um, that his grandson had something to say to us. And then watching this giant kid uh, get down on his knees and cry, like just really ugly cry, and tell us how sorry he was because he hadn't fully understood what it was he was doing. And that in talking to his grandfather, what he realized was actually he was mad at his parents and we just happened to be there. Um, and so, you know, when I talk about stories changing the world, that's what I'm talking about. Something happened to me. I went, I told my mom the story of this thing that happened. My mom found the grandfather and the grandmother and told them the story of what was going on, told them the story of why we had come to Canada. The grandfather comes to his grandson and says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about the boy you are and the man you can be based on the choices that you're making. And then the boy comes back and says, yeah, these were some wrong choices. And I've heard all of these stories and I want you to know that 
this story that you know of me as a bully is, is that's not the truth of me. That's not really who I am. Uh, and from that day on, that kid was on the field uh, first thing in the morning and, and right after school as our guardian angel, he watched out for us. And I, I can remember that. I can remember if kids got too close to us, he'd step in and why are, why are you there? Why are you, you know, he went up to this one kid because he was like, why, why are you so near those girls? What are you doing? What are you doing? This poor kid was like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just walking. Right. And our, our little guardian angel was like, well, you just keep walking. And I, I remember that, right. The, the, that every morning, every afternoon, it was always the questions, you know, how are you? Um, has anyone hurt you? Can I help you? And those three questions, um, they still bring me to tears because that was not, that was the same kid that threw stones and snowballs. Uh, and so, yeah, stories, stories change the world because every single day we have this amazing opportunity to choose kindness, to choose patience, to choose love, to choose understanding, to choose compassion, and to choose silence, to listen to someone's story, not in judgment, but just in tell me what is going on and tell me how I can help you. Um, and I think when we go out into the world like that, the world can't help but become better and brighter and just a more amazing and loving place. Well, uh, I appreciate your optimism. And, and I, I agree, that story is extremely touching. And I think your mother is a brilliant person for understanding mm. um, the true nature of bullyism. When I, I, and I've known a lot of bullies, I was a bully uh, at times myself in my life, and I mm. recognize that. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the people, the, the Boys that I bullied when I was in elementary school, I've tried to find them to kind of explain to them uh, what was going on with me and, and what, what what caused me to be that. I think most bullies are bullied in some sense, and they're just mm -hmm. turning it around. But I also think that children, uh, especially from my era, and I, I think it's probably still uh, pretty prevalent, is uh, children don't really think about the consequences of or what it really is. It's all kind of fun and games. It's cartoon-like violence. Mm -hmm. And we're not really considering, and, and because you don't really have that innate ability to kind of just empathize right away as a child, that uh, empathy takes some practice and skill. So when when you're doing that, engaging in bullying, you're not really thinking that you're really hurting somebody. It's like cartoon violence. It, it only hurts like it, it, you know, she'll just brush it off and be right back to herself in a moment and not realizing that you're doing long-term damage. So uh, I think at the heart of it, we tend to think that bullies are just evil evil people or, or evil kids. They're not. They're, they're kids who uh, don't understand the damage they're doing, number one, and sometimes don't take it all that seriously until you really get to feel it and empathize and, and empathy is taught to you and shown to you as this is the damage you're doing. You have no reason to feel remorse or, or sorry or sad or anything. It's just it's just like a, a cartoon. So um, mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate you sharing that. But, uh, you know, I think we, I'm so, it's one thing we're surprised at, at the story you just tell us because uh, here in America, we think of Canada as maybe the most tolerant of the white uh, nations in the world where where uh, prejudice is probably less there than any place, any other white dominated society on, on the planet. So it's kind of surprising to hear that uh, for, for an American to hear that 
that was an issue in Canada because we, I, my whole life, I've always thought of Canada as being an open and tolerant place. Uh, so I guess I'm, I was wrong in that. <laughs> we try, we try, but I think anytime you have different groups and, 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 um, a philosophy of competition over resources, you, you're always going to find that people will put into the us, us category versus them. But, right. you know, when you talk about empathy, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there's, there's an amazing amount of studies that talk about how reading books are one of the best ways to teach kids empathy, uh, to teach them critical thinking, to teach them deductive reasoning. Uh, but especially, especially empathy. And when we think about it, I mean, of course, because what are you doing when you're reading a story? You're reading about someone who uh, is not you. Right. You are in their heart. You are in their brain. You are right with them, hoping that they get their happy ending, being just as grumpy as they are when obstacles and, and mean people are being thrown their way. Uh, and it, you know, and it, it's, you know, it doesn't matter um, what kind of genre. It's nonfiction. It's fantasy. It's contemporary uh, books. Books are just amazing for the positive benefits that they they bring to all of us. You know, including things like reducing stress and helping us sleep better and and uh, making us a little bit healthier. Weirdly enough. Uh, but that's that's the magic of books. That's the magic of stories. Yeah, the, the power of story. I I completely get it. And I I I think most people are starting to kind of because we hear it even uh, in the business world quite often now. The power of story and the power mm -hmm. uh, of story to influence uh, people. And of course. Uh, we see it on social media with all the advent now of this going away from news feeds to try to push the stories on people. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but so the power of story is very, uh, it's becoming more and more uh, apparent to the world. And, and we get that. Now, I want to talk about specifically, you write for children. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, that has got to be a challenge as an adult to write for children. And I'm thinking, is, do you, do you define? Do you uh, restrict yourself to a certain age group? Like I'm writing for nine to thirteen year olds, or uh, what is your mindset on on how how to go about writing for children? And do you take that broad palette? Of, I'm writing from everybody who can read, say four years old to uh, fifteen, or what? What is your mindset? Oh, yeah. on that? Uh, my mindset is I just want to tell a great story uh, that you're going to love. And so, and you're, you're so right because an adult writing to an adult, you know, the, the, the thing that you think about is, okay, what's my genre and then what's my story. Um, when you're writing for children, yeah, you absolutely have to think about what are the age groups because how you write for a seven year old is not the same way that you write for a 12 year old and definitely not the same way you're going to write for a 16 year old. And you always have to be cognizant that kids are going to read up, meaning that the seven-year-old really wants to hear the story about the 12-year-old. They don't really want to hear the story about the five-year-old. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so there's there's age groups that you've got to think about. There's um, the fact that kids are learning how to read. And so you're going to have the kid at grade three that reads at grade three level. You're going to have a kid at grade three that's reading at grade five. And you're going to have a kid at grade three that reads at grade one. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to write for ages seven to nine. It's I'm going to write for ages seven to nine. And it's going to be for the kids who read at grade. It's going to be for the kids who read up. It's going to be for the kids who um, need a little bit of extra love when it comes to stories. And for me, I write across the board. So I write for ages five, six, all the way up to 18. I write for kids who um, super love the written word and they were, they're going to read at age 
level or up. I also really, really love writing for kids who need that extra love uh, when it comes to stories. So telling a really, really big story with a simple vocabulary um, and sentences that they can manage. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm all over. I'm all over because I really just want to be part of that, that net of authors that puts stories out into the world that lights up somebody's day. And yeah. if my book gets to do that, like, whoo, yeah, good, good job, Cash. Right? Well, <laughs> job, well, job well done. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And I, I applaud your, um, your, your motivation and all this stuff. But um, when in any in creative endeavor and bit the business side of it will tell you that you really need to niche down and define your audience in very uh, narrow parameters. And so mm -hmm. to, to, to be financially successful or be business, you know, in a business sense, be successful on that level. So that's got to be a challenge. Now, if you're writing to different, you know, from the marketing department, people who want to market your books, not knowing exactly who I'm supposed to be marketing to, because that's, you know, five to 17 is a, a huge, uh, <laughs> it's kind of too wide for those people. So has that been a struggle for you or are you your own, uh, publishing company or how does that work uh, for you? Well, I'm, I'm really lucky cause I have straddled. So I, I have done books as an independent author and then I do books, uh, with traditional publishers and I have a variety of different publishers. Uh, and I feel, um, yeah, I feel quite lucky because my publishers really understand, they understand their audiences and they have a huge heart for kids. And so, you know, for example, so one of the Canadian publishers is Orca Books. And so they have very specific categories for, um, so for example, if you're a, a teenager and you need that little bit of extra love, they have a category called soundings. So anyone that picks up a soundings book knows it's going to be a sharp, fast read. And it's accessible for kids who need that little bit of extra love. But for kids who read um, at grade and just are looking for like that airplane read or, you know, like the coffee read where they're just like going back and forth. It's perfect because they're, they're fast for them. Right. Oh. Uh, so and I, I mean, like, yes, you're right. You, you always have to come back to business because, you know, I mean, listen, you can try to tell Visa that you want to pay your bills with the smiles of children. But Visa's not going to take that as payment, is it, right? Um, but I always come back to like business, but business is an act of, of care for my audience, right? And so I'm, I'm very, um, I don't think of it as like a challenge per se, as much as I think of it as just this really like an act of kindness or, or this fun thing that will, that I, I go into and I say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to write this story and this is going to be for um, the kids who. So, for example, uh, Thicker Than Water is a story for reluctant readers, which is a category, right? That's what we term the kids who need a little bit of extra love. Um, and so, you know, I, I was very specific in the kind of vocabulary I used in, in how I use a sentence because I want this to be a win for whoever picks it up and reads it. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, sure. I can throw down five dollar words, but what is that going to prove? Right? <laughs> right, like, right. Great. I know I have a dictionary. Wow. <laughs> um, and then I was also really, you know, like I have excellent editors. And so this is when I talk about like, you know, you, you do it as an act of love and act of kindness, but also being flexible and open to understand that other people are going to bring their learnings and their education to it. 
And so my character's name in Thicker Than Water is Zach. And um, Zach's friend has gone missing. Zach thinks that maybe his dad is involved with, you know, Ella's disappearance. So that's the whole scope of the story. What does Zach do? Does he side with his friend or does he side with his dad? And when we were in edits, um, my editor came back and she said, hey, so, you know, you're spelling Zach's name, Z-A-C-H. And she's like, uh, you know, that's cool, except the C-H can be a K sound or it can be a ch sound. And how would you feel if we just spelled it as Z-A-C-K? Because that is like K is K, right? And I went, yeah, that's that's great for me. Anything that makes it, anything um, that makes it a fun read. And, and someone had said to me, and I, I think it's something that I will sort of keep close, which is, Hard writing makes easy reading. So I am totally happy to sweat it out uh, so that my reader can have a really great experience. I wonder if that's applicable to uh, music writing. I think it is. I just have to find uh, exactly how to apply it. But I think that's a valuable insight and and valuable advice. Hard writing uh, makes easy reading. I I appreciate that. My nephew, Zachary, uh, he's uh, all his life. He's been adamant that don't don't call me Zach, uh, Z A C K. He, he prefers it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's but his name is Z A C H A R Y Zachary. But when you shorten it, it becomes Z A C K. So um, I want to talk. I'm going to bring in the uh, the screenshot of the latest book here now because mm-hmm. I want to talk about this. Do you write? It would just from looking at the cover here now, and I'm making a wild assumption here that this is meant to teach uh, a lesson about what the world is going through right now with the whole COVID stuff. Am I wrong in that? Is was was this? Um, well, weirdly, it has ended up being that. But I, you know, I wrote this book before COVID, okay. um, and so you know, here I am. I'm researching the Black Plague, and it is just like one nightmare after another. Uh, and I'm, I'm researching all of this and I'm going back to my editor at Capstone uh, and I'm talking to my husband about this and I'm thinking, and I'm just like, I'm never going to sleep again because this stuff is terrifying. Um, you know, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm so glad I did not have to live through this. I'm so glad <laughs> that we're not going through anything like this. And I remember saying to my husband, I hope I'm dead before another pandemic hits. And yeah. then, right? Um, and it, it, it is such um, an interesting experience to have written this book about the Black Plague and then living through COVID and seeing the wild similarities in how people uh, deal with illness and deal with pandemics and um, deal with sort of social upheaval, but also how governments like so you know our government is saying you know wear a mask and social distance. Um, you know, don't go near people. And that was very, very similar to what was going on in 1300s Florence with, you know, uh, people would hold um, weeds and flowers. They would cover their faces. Uh, you know, they were hoping the doctors would find the cure quickly. You know, um, there were people that kind of split into groups where they went, okay, we all, we all need to get away from each other. And they sort of headed for the hills. And then there were people that went, well, the world is ending, so laws no longer apply. Um, and then it was like chaos in the streets. Uh, but even even something like travel restrictions, you know, Florence introduced travel restrictions. I think it was like in around April-ish. 
Um, yeah. I'd have to like double check my my notes, but yeah, they went okay. No, 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 nobody, nobody gets to come in if they're from like these these three uh, hot spots, and I think Pisa was one of them. Um, so it it's it's yeah, it's wild, it's yeah. wild. Uh, but just just like then and now, uh, again, there is there is stories of hope and resilience and overcoming and the girl survive series which is again through capstone books is amazing because it is girls in really big historical moments and and quite often dangerous and traumatic moments uh like the the fire the oh, i'm gonna try and think here the shirt shirt dress fire the shirt i'm i'm sort of blipping i can see the titles this makes it funny as a as a writer. I mix up letters and numbers, so it's always fun when I'm trying to remember stuff. Um, but like 9-11, um, the Underground Railroad, the Night of Broken Glass. Uh, so there's, I think there's like 24, maybe a little bit more less books in this series that all take place during these these sort of traumatic times and show that, yeah, you know what, with some resilience and and some pluck and some help from the people around you, you're, you can get through anything. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm just looking, oh, I was just looking over your webpage. Now we, I have the URL scrolling across. It's just Natasha Dean, uh, dot com. It's, mm-hmm. it's in the description. It's in, uh, the link is in the description for people who want to check it out. I'm just looking over the books page and, uh, what I'm, and I, I, I know I get a lot of mail on this. Why are you so obsessed with book covers? Uh, because, um, uh, we are, constantly told it's a cliche uh you can't judge a book by its cover now uh, uh but every but every do. everybody <laughs> does exactly and but so i'm do. i'm looking over your, your your uh book page and you know where you have them all listed in the series listed and it strikes me that the covers are extremely well done and uh um they just look like you know hollywood caliber productions uh so i'm wondering uh how much how much um, of you goes into that? How much? How much do you put put, put into that? How how involved are you in, in the cover design decision, final decisions on on what the book looks like and all that? Uh, it really depends on the publisher. Um, some publishers they they know their market really well, and they know their audience really well, and they know like, hey, if we hit if we hit them with this kind of cover, it's gonna be it's gonna be perfect. It's gonna explode the way we want it to explode. Um, and then some publishers are also like that, but they're like, okay, so here's what we're thinking. Just what do you think about this? Um, and I've always been really lucky that I get to look at the covers and just go, oh, hey, like, I like this, you know, and, and I wonder about this. Um, and to expiring writers, I would say this, like, it's really, really good to be hungry. It's not so great to be starving. In other words, <laughs> right, like, you know, go in and and do your best and and what have you but don't be so hungry to be published or to have that book on the shelf that you will just sign any contract make sure the publishers that you work with are reputable that they um pay their authors on time that they respect their author's work that they are they are champions of you and your book and like i said i am just super super lucky because i've worked with a variety of publishers, Capstone, Running Press, Orca Books, Great Plains Publishing, um, and they are all just so wonderful and fantastic to work with. Uh, and I just, I'm just so happy 
uh, that I get to be like in that roster and in the stable and get to call myself one of their authors. Um, but I've also turned down publishing contracts and I've also turned down um, opportunities because like a five minute Google search and I went, oh, nope, this isn't, this is not going to be great. I'm going to, you know, I may be able to say I'm a published author, but I'm not going to be proud to be associated with this publisher. So, you know, make sure, make sure as aspiring writers and established writers that you know what you're, you're going into because this is your career, right? Wow. Uh, all I can say to that is, holy crap, uh, that is probably, that that's the snippet that I need to cut out and play for every single aspiring author. <laughs> I've met, uh, first, first of all, I think you, you're a very unique person in having that patience, having that understanding <laughs> and trust. And when I say trust, I mean um, a lot, and I don't, I'm not just talking about authors, anybody in the creative field in any way, uh, we, we come at it from this period, uh, place where I'm the creator, I know best, and I want it, whether it is. I'm just going to take music, musicians, and and music artists as a an example here. I created the music. Now I think I should I should be the one to kind of design the album cover and all this stuff. And the uh, the whole idea we want complete control and giving up and trusting and learning to trust real professionals giving you good advice and discerning who are the ones who might give you good advice versus the yeah. ones who give you bad advice. And then, then the patience part of it that you talk about where uh, we all want to rush to get our stuff out because you've created something you want it to be, you want people to uh, appreciate it and celebrate it and, and, and consume it and all that. And so that patience is a very difficult thing. So that entire mm -hmm. uh, answer that you just gave is the textbook snippet that I think I need to cut out and play for every aspiring author mm -hmm. who, who comes on. Uh, that's not something that you had naturally, uh, or is it? Is that just your nat natural makeup, or did you have to learn trust and patience and all that stuff? Um, that That's a great question. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I just know that when I decided that I wanted to be a writer, I knew that it was going to be a business of one person, right? And that my publisher was gonna do what they could, but I still had to be responsible for things like, you know, making sure that manuscript is as polished as it can be. Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of times writers think, well, that's what I have the editor for. Well, yeah, but if you're an editor and you have two manuscripts coming at you and one is full of typos and grammar errors and the other one is like, a couple of edits and you're done. Like, just in terms of workload, what do you think you're gonna that editor is gonna pick? They're gonna pick the one where it's really obvious that this author cares about what they're doing and respects their craft enough to go through the endless edits to make sure it is as polished as it can possibly be. Um, and so, for me, I was like, this is gonna be a business of one. Uh, I'm gonna be responsible. This is gonna be a reputation thing. This is going like you know, you have to own those things. And so it is things like, do your research. I mean, it's great if your friend is published by this, you know, publisher, um, but make sure you have more than just your friend's experience. What are other people saying? What are other people doing? Uh, and then you get like a, a better sense of what it is. Um, right. And so for me, you know, it's like, every decision you make has a consequence. And so when I say yes, or I say no, I want to make sure that I've done my due diligence. So, um, so yeah, I researched my publishers, I made sure I knew what I was getting into, I made sure I knew uh, their body of work, and what they were like to work with. 
Um, and so, and then with patients, I mean, like, what are you going to do? It's, it's the writing industry, you know, at any point in time that you get uh, your book, uh, signed by a traditional publisher, you've got anywhere from like a year, a year and a half. If it's a picture book, you might have three or four years before you ever see that book on the shelf. So it is not a sprint. It's, it's a marathon. And so, you know, if you're an author where you're thinking, well, listen, I'm, <laughs> I'm 89 years old. I don't got time to wait for 10 years for something to be put on the shelf. Well, yeah, that's great. That that means that indie publishing is going to be your jam. And so do your research, find out, you know, who are the reputable people to uh, be using for your covers, for your, you know, formatting for what have you. Um, Cause it always comes down to your, you got to do your homework, yeah. right? And then you've got to own the decision you make. If you're, um, you know, if you're going to, I knew authors, I would just sign and then it would go sideways and they'd be upset. And I think, well, yeah, but, you know, we both have access to the Internet. And yeah. I, when you told me you were considering this publisher, I did my five minute search and went, this is going to end badly. Um, but you didn't. So your decisions have consequences. Right. And I would point out that that insight and advice is not just for authors. It's for everybody in the creative arts across the board, no matter what you're doing. Uh, it, that applies to, to everything. Now, I still have the, the book page up there because I think there are some things I, I want to talk about. But uh, before I even comment on a few of these covers, again, I, I know I'm obsessed with covers, but I haven't having not read the books. Uh, and, and the covers are all I have to go by, and I'm wondering what you know what the story is and who they're intended for. And so, but the first question I would ask is, when children, uh, when I you know I'm an, an adult, I can pick out my own books. When children are buying books, fi figuring out something to read, is, is the parent usually involved, or the kids are are kids giving kind of free reign to pick out what they want to read, and uh, are they the ones making the judgment on? this is a book I'd like to read. Oh, it definitely depends on, on the kid, right? I mean, no, no kid is growing up in the exact same family situation that everyone else is growing right. up in. So you're going to have, um, and it is something for, for kids writers to be aware of that you are writing for children and uh, your stories are for kids, but in between you and your audience, there's going to be parents and there's going to be educators and there's going to be um, parent groups uh, whereas if you're an adult writing to an adult, it's, it's just like a straight shot. Right. Um, right. and so for, for kids, yeah, I mean, you know, and, it, and again, it comes down to like, what's your writer voice and what's the kind of story you're telling? Because, you know, some, some, and who are you going to want to publish your book? So some publishers are going to be really conservative. They're not going to want you to use a lot of bad language. They're not going to want a ton of violence. Um, some publishers are very focused on uh, the stories of girls. Some publishers really want fantasy stories. So you, again, you you have to do your research, um, and then you know who knows, right? Like sometimes right. it's going to be the kid coming in, uh, and they've got the money, and they're going to buy the book. And then sometimes it's the kid going to their their parent or their guardian and saying. I really want this book. And then the parent or the guardian will, you know, make that decision. And so for me, there are certain books where um, depending on the age of the kid, you know, like when I, cause I do school visits, I do library visits and the whole bit. Um, and I will say to parents, Hey, listen, just so you know, 
this is kind of a darker story. So you might want to just give it a quick pre-read to make sure it's it's okay for your child. Um, because I certainly, you know, it's not my intention. I don't want to be blowing anybody out of the water. But, you know, certain stories are written for very specific audiences. So uh, the Guardian series, for example, is um, it's dark and it's uh, horror-ish. And it's all about a girl who sees the dad. And, you know, in each book, there's a ghost who oh. has died in a certain way. And she's got to, like, transition the ghost. But in transitioning the ghost, she's also got to figure out who it is that's killed this person. And, yeah, murderers don't want to be caught. Um, yeah. And sometimes she's dealing with otherworldly forces. So it, it is dark. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to say to parents, like, there's some, there's some pretty mature content in here. So make sure that you know that this is what's going to go on. You know, like for a guardian, for example, um, you're dealing with uh, she's she's dealing with the ghost of the kid who bullied her. So, you know, there's going to be trauma there. Um, and then as she delves into it, it's exactly what you're saying. All of a sudden you're finding out that this kid was living in an abusive household. Um, so if your child is very sensitive or you're not comfortable with your kid reading about domestic abuse, this, you know, like, go ahead and pass on it. You're not going to offend me. You know, right. I, I want your kids and, and you to be happy with the books that you choose. So, right. Yeah. Uh, what, what you just said put so many thoughts in my mind now. Uh, when you're just talking about the ghost who grew up in an abusive child. Uh, abusive home i was thinking uh about uh, back to your mom was was your mom uh did she have training in psychology did, did, did... no 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 she's just a brown lady <laughs> caribbean caribbean women man like they wow they're they are something onto themselves yeah uh, I, I, I would never mess with a caribbean mother like ever <laughs> ever <okay. laughs> well, when i started that question about um kids buying their own books or not mm -hmm. uh, I, w I was thinking of and i don't even know if they do this anymore when i was in elementary school every year we had a book fair Scholastic, and, uh, right? yeah right yeah. and uh i would get an allowance to buy books my parents had no idea of the books i was buying but that that was an exciting day for me that because i got to go in and have some independence on wh what mm -hmm. I wanted to do and pick out yeah. a lot of books and stuff like that. So that was my uh, thinking uh, uh, about asking questions. Are, are children buying their own books? Now, looking at the uh, the books, the covers here, mm -hmm. um, at Doc's end seems to me to be um, possibly, and I, I don't know the story, I'm just judging by the cover, but possibly something... Uh, uh, a subject matter that might be a little bit dark too. Uh, and so mm -hmm. the question I would have, is there any kind of subject matter that is inappropriate because children are growing up faster. They're, they're more in tune. They get more information now. Is there any kind of subject matter that we really shouldn't be writing about for kids or, or is anything really on the table to kind of educate them and help bring them into adulthood in a yeah. in a better sense of what it means to be a a, a productive and value adding and non bigoted <laughs> person growing up. Uh, no, it, that's no, those are great questions. And and I my opinion is that you can talk to kids about anything. Um, you just have to be appropriate in how you handle it, depending on their age and and their maturity level. And certainly, like there's, you know, if we think about it in, as a reality. You know, it's wonderful that there are kids who are growing up in homes where they are loved, 
they are fed, they are nurtured. But there are a lot of kids who are growing up in horrific circumstances and their stories deserve space to be told and their experiences need to be told so that, you know, the the adults around them can start doing something to make sure that kids don't have to grow up like this. And I really respect when parents, you know, they want to keep their children as innocent for as long as they can and all those kinds of things. But I think books that deal with difficult subject matters are a really, really great way to, to teach children that not everybody has a loving parent. Not everybody grows up and opens a fridge and there's food. Not everybody grows up just assuming they were always going to have a roof over their head, you know, and, and books can be a bridge um, and a really safe bridge to have those kinds of conversations with your children. Uh, and so I think too, um, so Orca Books has, and I'm hoping I remember the name of the series enough, but I think it's called Just Enough. And the entire series is dealing with, uh, you know, difficult subjects like how do you talk to kids about death? Um, and it's and the the series is called Just Enough because it's just enough information that is accessible to children of this age group. Um, and the you know you can you can spark the conversation. Uh, so yeah, you know, I, I there's always a little part of me that gets a little bit grumpy. <laughs> when you know parents want to censor books or pull books out of libraries because i think what a privilege for you to do this um because you don't think it's appropriate for your child but trust me there's some kid out there who is living that circumstance and rather than pulling it perhaps the better choice is to have a discussion um and again you know we go back to it teaches empathy it teaches understanding it teaches that the world is bigger and just your experiences are your experiences, but they're not necessarily somebody else's. So if you have great experiences, cherish them and, mm. and have a heart for the people that, that don't have that. Do you uh, find that, that um, because children of today are uh, uh, very much in a short attention span theater, they want the uh, stuff, and they not necessarily they want, but they've grown up in a world where everything is uh, on demand, spoon fed, and short bites, and all that kind of stuff. Do you find that reading is uh, encouraging reading among children is becoming more difficult or not? No, I find the adults have the shorter attention span. <laughs> uh, my my experience is not that experience when I go into schools. Um, what I find is what it is. It's not that, that, and again, this is, you know, personal opinion and, and personal experience. Um, but I don't find that kids necessarily have a shorter attention span. I think what it is, is that they're a lot more discriminating, um, about how you're going to catch and hold their attention. Right. And so, you know, if you're going to get up there and be boring, Right. You know, you're you're not going to hold their attention. And, you know, I, I had an experience. Um, so when I go and visit schools, uh, it's all I'm, I'm very flexible. So I always leave it up to the schools how they want to do um, the, the sessions. Do they want to have a whole school come in? Do they want to break it up according to age group? Like whatever you want, whatever works for the rest of your kids, that's going to work best for me. Uh, and so it was. um a situation where we did a whole school presentation. So every kid in the school came and sat at the assembly and then we broke off and did, you know, writing workshops for the rest of the day. And so I, I came in and I, you know, and my presentations, I, I talked to kids about things like racism. I talked to them about bullying. I talked to them about 
um, how hard it is to find your place in the world, um, but that we are so much more powerful and, and then, then we give ourselves credit for it. and that, you know, we have so much more value than the world tells us that we do, you know? So I, I go and I do the presentation and, and it's great. It's fine. The kids are wonderful. Um, and then it was lunchtime and I'm sitting with the teachers and um, one of the teachers said, we did not think this was going to happen. Like we've never been able to see our kids sit uh, still for such a long period of time. And then what he said is, what it's made me realize is I'm approaching these children wrong because they obviously have the capacity for it. And I think, well, but it, it's true, right? I mean, if a kid can sit through a three hour movie and video games and what have you, it's not, and, and for us the same way too, like I've been to writing workshops as an adult where I'm just like, no, <laughs> what is, can I, can I sneak out? This is so boring and I love writing. I love everything about writing, but man, if you can't connect to me, and I'm a professional in the industry, like, wow, okay, you know? Um, so it, it's about connection. And this is why we need to teach writing in the schools because it's about connection and it's about communication. And it's about knowing who your audience is and tailoring your story so that there is this bridge between you that you can understand where they're coming from and you understand where you're coming from. And then hopefully you can find the resolutions that you need to find. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not as polite as you, I guess. I would have no qualms about standing up and walking out on uh, <laughs> and and saying this is not for me. I'm bored. You you're not a- is, it, is it a stereotype <laughs> to be like, but I'm Canadian. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, my DNA, man. <laughs> yeah, when I talk to authors who write for adults uh two things that they are most uh not rewarded by but they find uh happy moments and and rewards not the most rewarding necessarily but rewards for what they do and part of that is reviews and the other part of that is book signings when when uh when people who are fans of their, their uh their writing come up and and present themselves and they get to meet them and shake hands and all that stuff is that part of the uh authorship for for children's books do you get do you get a lot of reviews do they write reviews themselves and are they excited to meet the author oh yeah i mean listen i I don't care who you're writing for anytime that you have someone who comes up and says oh i love your story you're like thank you because if you only knew how many late nights and early mornings (laughs) how much sleep was lost um, and then for reviews, you know what, I, 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 my publisher sends me the reviews. I don't go looking for reviews. Um, and that, I think that comes from how I write, uh, and, and sort of what my intention is. So to me, whenever I'm writing a story, I feel like what I am doing is I am making a playground for my reader. And so in my playground, I'm going to have slides. I'm going to have swings. I'm going to have merit. I'm going to have all of it. But where my reader wants to go and play is completely up to them. And in other words, like, I'm going to, you know, we can go out into the world and we can give every single person the exact same book. None of us are going to read the same story because we have filters, we have values, we have trauma, we have experiences, good and bad. Um, And one of my favorite kind of stories is uh, I heard uh, Judy Bloom, who is like one of the classic kids writers, and she was talking about how she had received this really terrible review. And, you know, and it, it had upset her so much, she actually considered, like, just stopping, just quitting. And, uh, and like, what a terrible thing that would have been. Like, don't ever let a bad review stop you from writing, because you're, like, that's one person's opinion. 
right? And you always got to balance it. Like here's one bad review and here's one good review. However, she ran into the reviewer, I think like years later, and the reviewer actually came up and apologized to her and said that um, it had to do something with like the reviewer was eating at the same time that she was reading the book and it was a particularly gory, gross moment in the book and the reviewer got sick and, you know, sort of took it out on the review. Uh, and I always try to remember that, you know, and I, I say that to writers all the time. Like, if you get a bad review, you don't necessarily know where it's coming from. You know, you may have a great story, but, you know, the character's name is Jeff and the person who's reviewing it just broke up with a Jeff and Jeff is really gross and they hate Jeff. And every time they're reading your book, they're reading Jeff, but they're thinking of their Jeff and now they're going to give you a one star rating. Uh, and it has nothing to do with you or the book. It has to do with the fact that they're really cheesed at Jeff. Right. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I've had people, I had people tell me that they couldn't read in the key of Niragani because the cover was pink. Okay, cool. You know, um, I mean, talk about judging a book by its cover, but I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a really dark natured person, I guess, because I, I look at that and I, all of a sudden I'm thinking it's not even necessarily somebody who even read the book. It could be another, uh, an unsuccessful author who basically looks at you and is judging your yeah. success and saying, why aren't I more successful? How can I, and yeah. I'm going to lift myself up by pushing her down and yeah. I'm going to write a bad review. Have but, not. That's, that's so perfectly said. We don't know the context of good or bad reviews. Right. And if you're going to, like, I think they have to have equal weight. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're going to go in and look at reviews, then look at all of your reviews. And if they're mostly good, good, success, right? If they're mostly bad, then perhaps there is something that needs to be said. You know, maybe your plot is holy. Maybe you do need to work a little bit better on your character development. But also, I mean, we come back to who is your ideal reader. And right. all of us have picked up books and put it down and went, no, it's not for me. Um, but you know, the book is for someone else and right. that's okay. Right. Right. Well, this is, uh, meant to be complimentary. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if, it, if it's going to sound that way, but, uh, I think you are, uh, among creative people, I think you are unusually blessed to have a good balance of right and left brain thinking. <laughs> most, and I, I say, that, I know it sounds funny, but I, I think most creative people don't, and that, and which is why that one review will kill a bad review will kill uh, the spirit of a lot of creators. And for that, I say anybody who is struggling with that ought to <laughs> spend at least one day with. Uh, stand-up comedians and see uh, because that's the ultimate failure and that's it when you bomb on stage as a, a stand-up comedian uh, suicide is not uh, out of the question in most of <laughs> uh, and so you go home and you beat yourself but you get back up on the horse and, and the next yeah. night and you're back up in the club uh, yeah. so there's a lesson to be learned about how to develop that sensibility of dealing with bad reviews or, or negative reviews and, and any of well, that stuff. One, one of the things that might help is I always say to people who are struggling with a bad review, go on Amazon, find your favorite book in the whole world, like the book that you just go to whenever you <laughs> need to be lifted up, and then read all the one-star reviews that that book got. And you'll yeah. see how really obvious it is that the people who are giving the one reviews are not, they are not the ideal reader, right? And it, and so you know, it's just, yeah, I mean, people people are allowed to have their opinions. As long as you are proud of the story that you have created, um, and as long as you tried your best, then right. let the chips fall where, where they may. We're always going to grow as writers. We're always going to grow as people. Um, and 
that's that's okay, right? Like that's the way it's supposed to be. Right. And 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 to that same point, I do it all the time on YouTube where I'll, I will see a video that is just, whether it's a music video or a performance or anything and I just say it's just astonishingly perfect and moving and it's got yeah. uh 15,000 thumbs up and I look over and there are three thumbs down and I'm like <laughs> three people actually There's it, always going to be a grumpy person in the group. There always right. has to be, right? And, there's and there's it, a even in Winnie the Pooh, there was an Eeyore, and he was lovely, but he was, right? He was right. never happy. But ever. grumpiness doesn't explain, because of grumpiness, I would just leave and not say anything. But mm -hmm. I actually take the effort to put a thumb down. That's that's saying I'm going out of my way to, to be a curmudgeon yeah. and ruin everybody else's good time. <laughs> yeah. So human nature is what is all right. that. So, right. uh, if, that's, uh, if that's a person's character, then take it for what it is right. right like do you really want to put that much investment of of your energy and your emotion into someone who really went out of their way to make your day bad right have you given any thoughts and uh, most people if i ask this question probably have never given any serious thought uh, about it because we go about what we do and we we just do it we just do it uh but have you given any thought about uh to the idea of what if you had to come up with like your biggest reward for doing this, what, what is the, what do you find the most rewarding out of what you do? Uh, it makes me brave. Right. Um, I think writing is difficult because at any moment in time, we have to face ourselves. We have to face our insecurities. We have to face all those questions, right? What if no one likes my book? What if I can't finish this book? What if, what if, what if, um, and so at any point in time that I think we are willing to go into those dark thoughts and those dark questions and just sit and be okay being uncomfortable, be okay being frustrated, being okay deleting all of those pages because we love our reader enough to start again, uh, I think that's, that's the reward, right? Like that's a job well done. Um, right. and, and when... Yeah, and I guess, and that's the thing too, like we we face ourselves, which is why it's easy to face the bad reviews because really, I mean, this is a question for all the writers out there. Has anyone ever said anything about your book that you did not already in your darkest moments think yourself, wow, right? That, like, that too, yeah. you know, we, we are our own worst critics. <laughs> like the bad reviewers, you feel like, man, you should have come to me when I was in junior high and this mattered. You know what I mean? Like, what are you gonna, what are you gonna throw at me that I haven't already done to myself? Like, thank you, but right. You know, well, that that's the that's why in. that's yeah. why negative reviews can hurt because at, at the at the core of every single one of them, you have thought that yourself about it and wondered and dis mm -hmm. probably dismissed it, and then by somebody bringing it up, you're like, maybe I shouldn't have dismissed it that fast. Uh, and and so we're as a a, a race, you, I mean the human race, we're very inclined to. Uh, let those negative um, thoughts and, and things mm -hmm. seep in, and when somebody validates a negative thought, that's why that's why one negative review can be so powerful. Uh, final question before mm -hmm. uh, we wrap this up: I, as you get older, like uh, you're in a unique position, children's authors are in a unique position in that they're moving away from their audience at all mm -hmm. times. As you get older, does is it a challenge to stay? young in in your mind and and be able to relate to your audience because you're going this way and they're staying here <laughs> well you know it's it's that's a great question because you know there are certain things that are universal no matter how old we are right that we want to we want to fit in we want to be of value to the people around us we want 
We want to walk into a room and see someone smile. We want to do something that makes a positive difference in the world. And, um, you know, I was, I was with a bunch of kids writers one time and one of them made the comment that she'd read an article that had put out the question or, or sort of the theory that uh, kids writers write at the moment in time that they experience their most trauma, right? The, the biggest emotional trauma, that's, that's where they're going to write about because that's the thing that they're trying to sort out. And so, you know, a couple of the authors went around and were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense because, you know, me being a teenager was really hard for me. And, and, um, and then a few of us were laughing because we, uh, we went, well, I guess our entire childhood was a trauma because we're writing for, like, all the age groups, right? Um, and so, yes and no. I mean, it's uh, the, the, the universal things about being a kid never change. The universal things about being a human being never change. Um, all, all that's going to really change are the fashions uh, the slang, you know, but Beverly Cleary, who wrote in like the 50s and the 60s, I mean, my gosh, her stuff is still relevant today. Judy Bloom's tale of a fourth grade nothing. I mean, that was back in the 80s. And, you know, kids still love it today, right? Um, so no, and I, I but I do, uh, I do like being a kids writer, because it gives me the opportunity to do all kinds of kiddish things like watching cartoons, or reading, um, you know, watching kid-based movies and being like, oh, no, no, it's research. Uh, right. So, you know, there's there's always the benefit of it, right? That you, you never really get old because you're always, you're always in it. Well, uh, I agree with, with 99, again, 99% of what you say. Uh, as being somebody who grew up in the Stone Age, um, uh, I have a real difficult time even re- uh, getting my wife who was only 10 years younger than me to really relate to some of the, the content that I love. And I'm talking about movies, books and all uh, that stuff. I grew up in a time where, uh, you know, playing outside was, you know, and I'm probably you did too, even because it hasn't been that long that we've become a, um, Digital, digital yeah. society, yeah. In, indoor society and young kids don't <laughs> necessarily socialize as much. And I'm wondering, you know, all about the effects of that because they, you know, when I was a kid, I had a group of probably 30 friends on a, a three block radius that we hung out with. Now I, my grandson is in the house, Ten, he's 10 years old. I can't name a single friend that he has. I don't know of any of his friends. I think his only friends are at school, doesn't mm-hmm. have them in the neighborhood. I never see him go out and play with kids in the neighborhood. So I think that's that's changing, and I have a difficult time relating to that as I get further. My, the world I grew up in becomes further uh, dis- disassociated with the reality that children grow up in today. So it's always mm-hmm. a, uh, something I think about and like, how do we, how do we maintain that connection where we can still relate to universal experiences, even though my experience of being 10 was way different than. Uh, well, like- well uh, but a lot of that too is how kids are being raised. Um, so I'm trying to remember it's the Netflix series with 11. She's the main character. Uh, Stranger things. That's it. So Stranger Things, which is set in the 80s, right? And and it's lovely and it's, you know, moody and the whole bit. Um, and there was a kid, I was at a school and there was this kid, they were talking and the one kid said, well, it's not believable. And I was like, well, yeah, because there's monsters that live in like the underneath or, you know. And, and he said, no, he's like, no kid is ever allowed alone outside for that long. <laughs> like no, no parent is ever going to let their kid wander around. And I went, oh, because it's true, right? right? I mean, we had way more freedom 
um, to, to get into trouble. And there had to be a high level of trust with our parents about the things that we were getting up to. Whereas today, I mean, there's GPS and there's parent controls and, you know, you can set your car to stop, um, to have like a maximum speed that it doesn't go past. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, there are things, there are things that are different for sure. Um, but a kid is a kid is a kid. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Well, I definitely appreciate your insight and time here today. And I hope, I hope we've added some value to people's lives. I think the big takeaway for me and meeting you and, and all is, is, is that a lot of people who get into the creative stuff and whether they're writers or again, you know, across the board on creative arts, uh, do it not necessarily with that idea of adding value and doing something that has a higher purpose other than me and business in other words Mm -hmm. i'm fulfilling my soul in in doing this creative act and then i'm going to put it out there and sell it and get financial rewards for it your your uh purpose uh and again we started out with to to change the world through stories i think is a, a higher stuff a higher goal a higher uh standard than most people are setting and i i would hope that your story inspires other people to kind of set those loftier goals and not not that there's anything wrong with doing something creative for yourself or doing something creative for financial gain but i think that part that most people are missing and i hope your your story uh kind of encourages people to think about at least is that other part part of the puzzle is doing something for a higher purpose and so i thank you for sharing that any final thoughts before we say goodbye no, this was wonderful. Thank you. I loved our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I hope the audience enjoyed it as well. I had a great time. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that because, uh, you know, my purpose here is to mm-hmm. uh, enlighten. and But it also, I, I, I have a responsibility to make it an enjoyable experience for you, make it a something that adds value for the listeners, whether that mm-hmm. is people who are interested in reading your books or aspiring authors who want to be like you or or, or do mm-hmm. what you do. So I have a broad uh, palette of people I'm trying to please. So it's always very uh, rewarding for me to hear that that it was. Uh, a it was a job well done, sir. Job well done. Thank you. I wish you great success. And please, I know you are extremely prolific by the number of books you already have out. Uh, You're welcome back anytime you have something new, a new book to come out that you want to promote. Please just get in touch and say, I'm ready to come back. I got a new book coming out. Perfect. Thank you. Great. Thanks for for coming. Have a great day and bye for now. Thanks. Bye. Natasha Dean, folks, uh, very inspiring and uplifting story uh and you know some of the stuff she she talks about uh i think everybody can relate to in this whole world i think bullying is a you know a huge issue but again uh, as human beings we're kind of prejudiced about bullying and we always think that bullying bullies are necessarily evil people every bully is a broken person i will say that from experience uh been there myself i've been bullied and being bullied caused me to copy that behavior and pass it on to other kids who were not quite as strong as me or not quite as whatever uh prepared to deal with the bullyingism so um i think that that's a great but she you know 
again, I think it's really important to talk to kids about every subject that they might have questions about, insecurities about, and, and stories are a great way to do it. So that's my takeaway from today's program. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got great value out of it. I know I did. I hope you will check out Natasha's uh, website and the links are in the description and also patronize the book. Support the authors that are on this program. Please share this with your friends and family and all that stuff. Hope you come back and subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Go to my YouTube channel and subscribe there. And questions and comments for me, always info at minddogtv.com, info at minddogtv.com. I especially want to hear if you have any ideas what we should do for a 400th, and, uh, 400th episode uh, show. I'm kind of at a loss. I want to do something special. Not sure what to do. So I have a program tonight. Uh, Georgia Woodbine. Is that her name? Am I getting correct? I'm hoping. Yeah, Georgia Woodbine. Uh, she's a uh, New York girl, and she's a, she talks about success and, uh, and that kind of stuff. Not necessarily the entertainment uh, portion of the program that usually 8 o'clock is more business and success oriented, but uh, there will be some motivation and inspiration. So that's at 8 p.m. tonight, Eastern. I hope you'll join me then. Till then, I'm Matt Apple for the Mind on TV podcast. Thanks for joining me. Have a great rest of your day, and bye for now.
me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.